um, our next guest has published over 40 books. He has been shortlisted for the Booker Prize four times, and he won it with Schindler's Ark in 1982, which, as far as I'm aware, remains the best-selling um, Booker winner ever. He's been designated by the Australian government as a living national treasure. I'm not sure how that feels. Um, we're, we're inc- makes you sound like a coral reef. Um, we're incredibly lucky to have him here tonight, all the way from Sydney, to read for the first time in the UK from his new novel, The Daughters of Mars. Please welcome Thomas Keneally. in the room. Makes you feel great. (laughs) Well, now, look, I'm going to read Daughters of Mars is about World War I nurses. When people use the term World War I nurse, uh, they, uh, everyone goes gooey and imagines a young, fresh-faced Madonna in, in a red cape. But in fact, they were treated appallingly. And their struggle is a fascinating struggle, their struggle for recognition. Running parallel, of course, to the way they dealt with uh, tides of uh, damaged flesh of young men aged between 17 and 25. The interesting thing about being an Australian, if I might bore you for a second, uh, (coughs) is that um, uh, we're so, it's such a big country, and when we come to Europe, we come to see the glories, and we come to see the horrors, or the remains of the horrors, and the Australians couldn't get over the fact a uh, young soldier called Charlie Condon uh, can't get over the fact that from the Louvre uh, Museum to the front line is about 80 kilometres. So between high European culture and the most base savagery uh, was such a uh, short distance. The book is about girls young women from municipalities that are only 70 years old encountering that, uh, that savagery and trying to achieve status. They're partly motivated by the fact that between them they've euthanised their mother on a farm in uh, New South Wales in a town called Kempsey, named after a village in the Vale of Seven, And um, uh, it's always good to have your opening uh, passage well marked. Here we go. (laughs) Um, So one of them is injected, stolen the morphine. The other has injected their mother. That Saturday morning, Dr. Maddox came to lower his face over Mrs. Joran's and to ask Naomi about the last injection and how many grains, and to accept what she said, and then breathe, good woman, good poor woman. Then he prepared a medical certificate, which he showed Naomi and Sally, and which said that Mrs. Jorance had died of cancer, nephritis, 
and exinanition. There were in the valley many people Dr. Maddox had certified as dying of nephritis and exinanition. Nephritis and exinanition was the cited verdict all along both banks of the river and inland to the blue wooded hills where the timber workers camped and always died of nephritis and exinanition unless a tree fell on them. <laughs> Farmers who had taken poison to escape the bank had their death certificates compassionately marked by Maddox with that saving formula. Uh, very hard to in, encapsulate the book, but I'll, I'll leave that to your benign questioning. Uh, I uh, have had a very small experience of conflict, but I used to go to uh, Eritrea a great deal during the war between Eritrea and Ethiopia. It was a 30-year war, and then having been settled, it broke out again in 2000. Um, Iron Truen, who was here, uh, you've got to speak to Iron if you want to win the booker, because he runs it. Uh, so this is uh, our young friend, yes, this, this is Mr. Booker. <laughs> And, and when Craig gets his book done, Craig already knows about it, I'm, I'm sure. Um, so the, uh, the wounds that, that shocked me the most in Eritrea uh, were the, uh, the ones that deface people. Because even if you have an excessively plain face, uh, you know, such as without being uh, falsely modest, I think I can say I have such a face. <laughs> but if you lose it, you lose who you are. And uh, this is one of the unspeakable aspects of war that are not generally mentioned. There is a young Australian who is... Uh, almost accidentally, standing in the wrong place, and uh, he is in the nursery lines, as they call them, learning what it's like on the Western Front. He's not even in the front line. And uh, artillery bursts, and his face is taken away. <clears throat> the young women serve this wound, uh, because they have to serve all wounds to prevent septicemia uh, in the age before antibiotics. This young man, whose face was staked from his upper right eye socket to the corner of his lower mouth, uttered one day after his wound had been dressed a particular incoherent sound. He repeated it quite politely but insistently. They eventually realised he wanted a pad of paper and it was all at once so obvious that he should have been given one and a pencil earlier. It was as if his lack of a face had somehow prejudiced everyone into thinking he couldn't write. 
Honora fetched a pencil and a notebook with Australian Comforts Fund on its cover. He held up a hand, long-fingered, and had it do a form of salam in thanks. There was humour in his remaining eye, now left uncovered by the dressings. And so he set to writing a letter. The energy and fluency with which he wrote were astounding to Sally. When he was finished, he tore out the pages he had written on and coughed, for that was one form of expression thoroughly remaining to him. He folded the letter in four to fit the flimsy envelope they gave him and handed it over for postage. He then wrote on a full unfolded page, Nurses, would you kindly send this missive to, and there was an address, Mrs. G.D. Constable, Congungula, via Narramine, New South Wales. They said, of course, they would, and he nodded and began writing again. Sorry to hold you young women up, said the page he ultimately handed to them, but I heard people say I am the first Australian wounded in France. It's interesting to me that uh, often when something massive happens to humans, they then concentrate on some minor matter and invest all their anguish in it. And this is the minor matter into which uh, Captain Constable has uh, uh, invested his uh, re reaction to what's happened to him. I heard people saying I am the first Australian wounded in France. It is an annoying thing to hear. If you can find the means to do so, could you contradict this silliness at every turn? It is the one thing I cannot stand. To begin with, there were Australians in London in 1914 who enlisted in the British Army. Their cases are, were written up in the Sydney Morning Herald. Some of them must surely have been wounded before now. Could you please tell people as kindly as you choose to cut out the rubbish? The last thing I want to read is something someone read, read to me today, and it's such a fancy sentence. I want to read it to you in the hope that you'll think that I'm a $5 uh, fancy writer. Um, the young women and the doctors, etc., are crossing the equator on the way from Australia. Uh, Yet now, here was the equator, the equator, the burning and unconsumed filament that divided the world of southern innocence from the world of northern gravity of intent, and the hemisphere of the colonists from the hemisphere of the owners. Now, if a man could write like that all the bloody time. Uh, it'd be wonderful. But sadly, it's only one sentence per book. It's definitely at least a $5 book, I'm just going to say. I'm just going to say that now. Um, the, the book is epic in, in length and also kind of in, in scope. It's the first 
World War. And it's really interesting what you were just saying then about people um, choosing, when such big things are happening, choosing a really small thing to focus on. And I thought of Kevin Powers, his book, The Yellow Birds, where the American troops are fighting in the Middle East and nobody wants to be the thousandth British ca uh, American casualty. You know, there's this, there's this kind of number. And, and, and in the same way, this man doesn't want to be, um, doesn't want to be the first. Um, I wanted to start by asking you why, why, why it is, you know, I mean, you're over 14 books now that you've, you've gone back to the war and you've gone to the First World War and it's a different experience of the war than, than, than we've heard before. Uh, yes, uh, I wanted to uh, look at it from the point of view of, um, of women and I started, I've been writing on the sly, they're published only in Australia, but Social Histories of Australia. Our social history is really great because of convicts. I mean, there was, <laughs> there was sex and drugs and rock and roll. But also, uh, Britain used Australia as a dumping ground for undesirables of all kinds. And even the gentry uh, used it as a dumping ground for their either their miscreant sons or their dumb sons. So Dickens sent two sons to Australia. And if you look at them and their experience in Australia, uh, it's more akin to Mr. Micawber than it is to Magwitch. Uh, and uh, you can see a whole swathe of our social history through these two boys. Trollope sent a son uh, uh, also. So I was ri writing uh, these social histories uh, and I began to read nurses and stretcher bearers material and uh, I began to read both the British and the Australian official medical histories and I thought between the struggle of the women for status, their misuse, uh, particularly on the island of Lemnos, mm -hmm. even their sexual misuse on the island of Lemnos, of Gallipoli, um, and then their, uh, th the strength of character they had to, sh to show uh, to be heard, for their opinions on treatment to be heard, uh, was fascinating. And uh, I've started, uh, started writing uh, round about the time I first met young Amy Holmes here. I started writing... That's A.M. Holmes for you people who don't uh, call her Amy. A.M. Uh, <laughs> Holmes. The venerable A.M. Holmes. Uh, ever, uh, I, from about then, I've tried to write from the point of view of women. Uh, women's uh, strength interests me because um, uh, my father was away for nearly all of World War II. So my mother he was in the Air Force. held us together. Yes. Uh, and my, um, uh, I notice in Aboriginal communities in Australia uh, that are suffering from dispossession, poor health, but above all from s uh, spiritual and physical dislocation, that uh, it's the women who are holding things together. And so I was fascinated uh, by the way these young women dealt with that massive injury. Um, and I, I was once travelling in, in East Africa with under great protection of African friends, uh, 
uh, and we encountered a nomad a girl in a sling on the side of a camel being brought into uh, an Eritrean hospital and she'd trod trodden on a mine. And my response was to be ill and my wife's response was we're making a documentary for uh, Melvin Bragg for London Weekend Television. My wife's response was to stay with the, the child, the 15-year-old, uh, hold her hand and to do the sound during the surgery while the sound man and I were being sick. So I've been, I've, I've woken up uh, to the, <laughs> how actually women see through us now, but in those days women didn't see through men and we were still the super gender. And it's very hard to be the super gender. <laughs> I find it exhausting, personally. <laughs> um, you're supposed I, to mend shells <laughs> if you're that. I think I good at carpentry if you're the super gender. I think that's. <laughs> I think we all know that's beyond me. Um, but I, I'm interested because, of course, you should add that your wife Judy is a nurse at this point, so she she, yes, she had a so, practical role for being there. Yeah. But I just just to think about you know the war, um, which it didn't occur to me really until I read this book. The war was an opportunity um, for a lot of people to become somebody else, you know. Mm, yes, and and. Uh, of course, the First World War we're talking about. The here. First World War to become someone else. Uh, it was a form of, for Australians, Canadians, New Zealanders, people of that ilk, South Africans, it was a form of reverse immigration. It was an escape from the colonial torpor of lives in towns like the town these girls, girls come from. And no one knew it would be such a heinous experience. Um, and um, I'm also, because I can't, um, uh, not trying to diminish the patriotic impulse, the imperial solidarity, all the things people felt then. <clears throat> but uh, it, it did provide uh, a chance to see uh, the pyramids. So I've got an uncle's letters, and he, they're full of the pyramids, and the wonders of uh, going up to Paris and so on, and suddenly they, they descend to um, the horror to the point where when his younger brother enlists uh, in Australia, he said, don't you come anywhere near France. I'll shoot you myself rather than let you go into the line." There's a, there's, there's a question in the book, which is a kind of great debate on which this point of imperialism turns, which is to do with conscription, which I think is very interesting with the idea that um, Great Britain has an empire and is, is, is calling upon people from all corners to come forth back to the old world and defend the old world, which in a sense owns the new. And there's a great tension in the book between people sort of wanting to explore their own personal desire to see the old world, but also to be their, to be their own person, their own citizen. Yes, yes, they're... Always, uh, the Australians in this book are always um, using Australia as reference. And even a wonderful woman character, uh, I have a friend named Rachel Ward, who is a beautiful English actor, and she's married to an Australian actor called Brian Brown, who is your ultimate rough Aussie. 
Uh, he's the sort of bloke you marry if you want to get even with your parents. <laughs> Particularly if you're a member of the British gentry. <laughs> and Rachel's great granny, while she was in Australia as wife of the Governor-General, she started a bush nursing service. She went out, uh, she saw the way uh, women were giving birth in the country regions, and she started her own bush nursing service, which existed till modern times. And then in, when the war started, she founded an Australian voluntary hospital at Boulogne. And Lady Tarleton in the book, is in the book, uh, she's called Lady Tarleton, her real name was Lady Dudley. And I give her a lover because her husband was such a deadbeat. <laughs> I, I give her a lover also because the interesting thing... She needs a lover, to be fair. That woman works very hard. She does. Lady Tarleton. And the funny, funny thing about novels is... If you're 76, I turned 77 last week, you really, <laughs> you're really only about 28 when you're writing the book. You revert to the youth you were because the experience is the same. Mm. And all your, conscious, your consciousness as you write the book is about 35 years old. So everyone has lovers and no one takes Viagra. You know, you wouldn't know the book was written by a 77 No, you wouldn't know. It's the, mind you, I was only 76 then. Uh, that writing a novel is eternal youth. It's astounding that way. I mean, it's really very... Because there's a very direct connection with those young, the, those young boys who come to the front and you talk about what they're like when they arrive and then, and then we're able to discern a physical difference in them, which is to do with being older and experience having changed them. And the women notice this in, in the men. But yet there's this, also a sense, I think, in which some of the women are frustrated that they aren't able to have the experience... That, that they're afraid of it, but they're all, they also want to get closer, I think you say, closer to the flame or closer to the... The, the, the fire at the yes, centre of it. They, they don't know what's happening to the men whom, in some cases, they, they love, brothers and fiancés, and they have to treat so many uh, damaged young men en masse that they come to the conclusion about 1917, 1918, because they don't know the war's ever going to end. They come to the conclusion that nobody can survive this. Mm. And... Uh, Indeed, uh, some of the young men don't. And there was a wonderful woman. Uh, it, it was hard to be a strong woman in that era. Uh, and there's a wonderful woman called Vera Deacon who came here to London. Is she Matron Mitchie in the book? And, uh, well, no, she's the woman who runs the uh, casualty office. One of the nurses loses their fiancé and there's an Australian casualty office run by a young woman uh, in her late 20s without anyone asking to her, her to. The military hate her because she's giving away too much information. 
but families in Australia can write to her and find out what really happened. And she's very, she inquires down to unit level and she's very uh, direct in her news. And when there's no hope, she tells people there's no hope. And one of the young women in this book, Honora Slattery, mm. uh, she becomes obsessed with this. She gets the answer from this woman in London, who actually existed, uh, but has been borrowed for the book. Uh, and she doesn't take the answer. And she's obsessed with the fact that when her fiancé was wounded, captured, and in fact, we all know he's just been obliterated, there was a letter from her, a love letter in his tunic. And she's worried about Germans reading it and laughing at it. And you know that she has nothing to worry about in that regard because her, her fiancé is part of the soil of France now. But uh, it obsesses her because it's connected to her conviction that he still lives. Yes. And women like that want to get... They, they want to know what made their men look so strange, what changed their eyes. Well, it's, it's interesting because there's, there's, a, there's a sort of idea of fatalism which runs through the novel, which is the idea that, that somehow you might, without knowing it, be too much of something or not enough of something in yourself to make you be exposed to the German guns. And there's a character in there who's an, who's an artist um, and, and, and his, his lover, well, his, his wife-to-be, Sally, who's one of the sisters, is, is desperately worried that he might somehow be too artistic or too beautiful um, that he would attract, you know, that kind of hatred. That he would attract uh, ill luck, yes. Yeah. These, these young women are very aloof and dubious about uh, relationships with men. They've got the, uh, their dubiousness from their parents' marriage. Mm. Uh, but... Uh, this young woman is, uh, one of them is attracted to a Quaker orderly uh, from Melbourne. <laughs> the other is attracted, <laughs> the other is attracted to a young man who is uh, an artist. He's been to a few, a couple of the, a couple of classes few the art yeah. schools yeah. in Sydney. And he's bowled over by, he runs into the Impressionists. He's absolutely bowled over by them and... Who are he, then current, by the way. Who are then yeah, current. Yeah. And he thinks, God, if I could only take the Impressionists to Australia, because Australia's got the light and France has the talent, and if we could put the two together, <laughs> <laughs> what an art school that would be. And she thinks he's too fine a soul to last, she has a sense that the forces of malice will concentrate particularly on him. Now, I, I, it's difficult, again, because people haven't, haven't read the novel and they don't know the ending, but I can ask you the question because you're here without giving it away. You do something very clever and also tricksy at the end. Is that because you were indecisive or is that because that's really what you wanted to do? Well, look, throughout the book, uh, there's one of the sisters who feels that she's living in a parallel universe. Their hospital ship is torpedoed. Both the sisters survive. It's an incredible set piece in the novel. Uh, and um, 
but she feels that there's another her, just a nudge, half a degree nudge away from the one who survived, who drowned. Uh, and um, therefore, throughout the book, she's feeling that there is another Sally who has, at a number of points of her uh, career, departed from the one, the actual Sally, the one who lives. So at the end of the book, there are two alternate endings. And it's not till the end that I say, but in the actual world, in, in, in the actual universe, the, or the universe we consider actual, this is what happened. And so what I want to know is, is, did you write the bit before and then think, actually, I don't want that to be the case? Or did you always know that you were going to do the two? Well, I, I knew because I'm a miserable old sod during under this uh, 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 studiedly genial exterior. <laughs> I, I knew that, uh, that one of them would uh, uh, run into the Spanish influenza. I mean, that was the very worst uh, end of the war, that mm. there should be an influenza that targets, in particular, the young. And uh, I, I live on the north head of Sydney. I go for a bushwalk every day. And I pass a graveyard in the bush, graveyard with one of the best views in the world, right down Sydney Harbour. Uh, and it has a number of people, soldiers and nurses, who died of that Spanish influenza of 1918. And it figures in the book too. And it, it will claim uh, one of these two beautiful sisters, both of whom I loved. I don't know where they came from. But when the book was finished, I actually, and it doesn't happen often, generally, I, the first thing that happens when I finish a book is to call Deborah Rogers and say, will you please invoice Hodder for the book? <laughs> but uh, in, in this case, I, I grieve for the loss of them. But it was part of the tragedy of the book that one of them would have to fall foul of this terrible, unjust, culminating infection, uh, which uh, added itself into the horrendous mix so you grieve for the loss of, of one of them. We won't say which one. Um, but might the one that you don't grieve for come back in, in another way? Might you bring her back? I mean, well, now that's an idea. Um, <laughs> that's an idea. The, the, uh, because, uh, uh, I, I, again, I, I've mixed most of my, most of my life with rambunctious women. And I don't know where these two came from. <laughs> and uh, I would like to renew her acquaintance. I'm not worthy of her. I'm not worthy of either of these girls, but uh, uh, either of these young women, I should say. Um, but, um, but maybe one of them will come Their back. aloofness uh, is, is a very important trigger 
of who they are and of what happens in the well, novel. I mean, they're, they're called the Durant sisters, and throughout there's this idea that they're the Endurance sisters, and they're used to people perceiving them as being distant, and it's actually part of their strength. I think it's what keeps one of them alive. Um, Sylvia. I don't know. Um, my quest question to you is, um, you know, you've had a long and prolific um, career. Uh, when this chap walked into the bookshop and started saying about his experiences of the Holocaust, what was the point where you thought, this is a great story? This is the, 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 this is the question about, about, about Schindler's Lark, and I wonder if you could you know, share with us, because people, I think, don't know <laughs> the origin of that story. Uh, yes, well, um, I... Uh, worked a little bit in the Australian film industry in the 70s with the revival of Australian cinema with uh, people whose names you may be familiar with, uh, Fred Skepsi, uh, Peter Weir, Gillian Armstrong, Jane Campion, uh, Bruce Beresford, uh, and uh, there was a festival of Australian film in Sorrento. And taking Australians seriously in 19... <laughs> 1979, 1980 was, you know, we just weren't used to it. When we recovered from the shock, I went to that festival uh, and then returned via Los Angeles and bought a, a, a briefcase from uh, a, a dealer in, um, in uh, what are they called, Beverly Hills, yeah. Uh, and uh, was just an ordinary suburban store, and he was a Schindler survivor. And my credit card was held up uh, because it was an Australian credit card. I bought a briefcase, and he talked like the clappers, and he took me out into his repair room where he had two filing cabinets full of Schindleriana, uh, which he lent me for the weekend. So his name is? Uh, Leopold Pfefferberg. Poldek, uh, Pfefferberg, uh, he's deceased now. Um, I don't know why I thought I could write it. I'm not Jewish. I think the fact that my father was so involved uh, in the campaigns in the desert and kept on sending me back Nazi memorabilia. I was only one degree removed, but also uh, despite our terrible war, uh, which we won because we had um, uh, repeater rifles uh, against the Aboriginals. Despite that, I could never quite understand how uh, the metropolitan Europeans could be so uh, obsessed with uh, anti-Semitism. And uh, Therefore, I'd always been fascinated by the, uh, by the Holocaust, but in a lay sort of way. Um, and uh, the fact, I sort of talked myself into the fact that I could write it, because so I liked what did the he story. What did he present you with? What was it that he, he gave He you? presented me with a copy of the list, a copy of testimonies from people, some telegrams, uh, from SS Gross-Rosen to uh, Brinlitz camp in Czechoslovakia, uh, photographs, uh, letters, uh, and um, some of it he got photocopied that day 
uh, in his inimitable way, he took the material up to the local bank and said, uh, could you uh, photocopy this stuff for Mr. Thomas here? And they said, we're very busy, Mr. Pfefferberg. And he says, so, so I, have, I have lunch every second Tuesday with your president and you're too busy to make me a few lousy fathers have a <laughs> And that was the sort of bloke he was. And um, uh, ultimately, I was persuaded by, I made up a number of reasons why I could write it. I wouldn't dare do it now, but I, I thought, well... Why wouldn't you dare do it now? Uh, I, I'd lack the confidence, the recklessness, to, to undertake it. Uh, I've been aware of a little bit of discrimination, in fact, considerable discrimination in Australia in my childhood. Because we had white Australia, there weren't many people of other colours other than Aboriginals to hate. And there was great sectarianism between the, the Irish and the rest. And uh, I felt um, a certain amount of this uh, discrimination myself. I mean, there were places we grew up knowing there were places where you couldn't get jobs. And the Christian brothers would tell us occasionally, boys, you can now get a job in the Department of Agriculture because our good Catholic Knights of the Southern Cross have taken it over <laughs> from the evil Masons and Protestants. <laughs> Anyhow, so I, I, I just had a little flavour of what it was like to belong to a less favoured uh, race, but not enough to really justify writing the book. But I tried to convince myself I did. Poldek kept on saying, you can write it. I'm not Jewish, Poldek. All the better, you shouldn't be Jewish. This, this isn't the book for Jews. This is a book for the world, etc., etc. He's extraordinarily forceful man, he used to call Steven Spielberg and say, Stephen, uh, stop making films with little furry animals. <laughs> <laughs> Enough with little furry animals. <laughs> you will only win an Academy Award for a great movie of humanity man to man, an Oscar for Oscar. <laughs> and he, he was right. Uh, he was right. I will take one more question. One more question for Thomas, or maybe to uh, Pinch. Um, questions over there? No, no, no. Yeah, here. Oh, sorry, I couldn't see. Sorry, Anna. Hi. Uh, I've read that there's more and more young Australians making a pilgrimage, uh, for want of a better word, or maybe it is the right word, to Gallipoli uh, for Anzac Day every year. Why do you think the First World War is becoming so increasingly fascinating? Um, Gallipoli is the key action um, in, in this book. It's the key part of, of the war. Um, and Anna was saying that a lot more younger Australians um, are, are, are coming to that part of the world for Anzac Day. Why do you think that is and what does that mean, about, I guess, about Australian identity? And, and far more English Scots and considerable numbers of Irish were and David killed, Cameron's just killed there you know. too. Uh, and yet in, in Australia it is synonymous with nation-building and where are we? I'm, I'm ambiguous about it, actually. Uh, there's no question that the Australians uh, on Gallipoli behaved with huge valour, uh, but then so did 
so did other uh, races. Um, we did invent sniping on uh, Gallipoli. We began the sniping process. I don't know if that's a uh, cause for celebration. Well, we invented or not. concentration camps, so you know, yeah. all, all in all, you know. <laughs> the uh, the uh, ambiguity is that surely uh, we have more to celebrate than things than s offshore, sad, tragic offshore slaughters. As so much Australian mythology is based on what happened on the Kokoda Trail, the stopping of the Japanese. The first reversals of the Japanese were done by um, young kids and there was undeniable heroism and recklessness, and, uh, and you can't spit on that. And there was an undeniable brotherhood, which in other circumstances might have turned rancid, but in those circumstances often approached a form of holiness, you know, that the nurses uh, write about. Uh, but they're also terrible tragedies, terrible treacheries, terrible, uh, and, and simply the loss of foreshortened lives and lives blighted. So it's interesting to me that we're so passionate to celebrate the offshore more than the onshore. But it is true, the Australians, young Australians, go to Gallipoli. I've been to Gallipoli. It's, it's a must-go-to site. We have no sense that we invaded a country when we landed at Gallipoli. We, it, was, it, it, it is in our imagination holier than that. Uh, and I was well into my teens before I realized we lost mm. and had to evacuate. But our evacuation was very skillfully organized over three nights and it became, it was built into the victory. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I feel ambiguous about it. I, I know one certain thing that I would have been a coward had I been there. Okay, uh, the last thing I want to ask you is you said in an interview before there are too many stories around to be written um, and I'm an imperfect storyteller. Um, I just want to write another one. I'm attracted to tales, and I just wonder what you want to write next. Uh, well, look, one of the things I am attracted to is writing about the days when two Dickens boys and one Trollope boy uh, were members of the Wilcannia Cricket Club. Now, if you go... <laughs> uh, Wilcannia is about a 16-hour drive from Sydney. It's out on the Darling the last barrier of fertility before the great dryness begins. Uh, and um, that's one thing I'd like to write about. I think a novel uh, that uh, on Murdoch and the way Murdoch emerged, because Murdoch's father is a very interesting man, a friend of uh, uh, Lord... Um, Voldemort. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> what's, what's his name, the great newspaper? Beaverbrook. Beaverbrook. Uh, North... Northcliffe. Northcliffe. Northcliffe, yeah. They used to call Murdoch's father 
Southcliffe. And he had a stammer, and he, he had a stammer. He helped bring about the end of Gallipoli, the evacuation of Gallipoli. But then young Rupert, because I, I think Rupert is a perfect organism. He just does what governments have been dumb enough to let him do. And he's just acquired. And now he's become such a tyrant, they're pleased to pull him down a bit. But in a way, he's a perfect, uh, uh, I shouldn't use the word virus, he's a fellow human being. But he, he's like a perfect, vi viruses do what viruses do. Uh, what they're allowed to do, and he's done what he's been allowed to do, but it's fascinating, I find it fascinating, his power and where it came from, and he's growing up in Melbourne and Adelaide, where you grew up, and uh, uh, then going on from that to a form of world domination and dictatorship. Which I don't think HarperCollins will be publishing and the Times won't be serialising and the Sky <laughs> won't be talking about. Thomas Keneally, thank you so much. Thank you.